Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We continue in the book of Acts, chapter 23 this morning. The title of the message is Facing Hatred. And we'll stand and take verses 12 through 14. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word. And if you're joining us online, and if you're out in the lobby, hopefully you can you will stand also if you are able to. Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 14. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath, that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Please be seated. How many people know that these kind of things are in the Bible? After Pentecost, those apostles, they were not insecure men. They were very focused, and there's great lessons in so much of this, I think, for us. Maybe you struggle with insecurity. Um, and, And, you know, faith is the antidote for that, believing what you confess, and it, it takes work. Um, faith it takes hard work to develop, to mature in the faith. This um, hatred that Paul was facing, again, to just a recap for those of you unfamiliar with what's going on, Paul had <clears throat> found himself in the Jewish temple because of James, uh, the brother of the Lord, the half-brother of the Lord, and he was arrested there and charged with violating the temple and Uh, uh, bringing Gentiles in. Uh, These were false charges. But a mob developed around him, and they were going to kill him, but the Romans uh, interfered with that and came to Paul's rescue. Well, it turned out that uh, the Romans wanted to get to the bottom because the Romans were the ruling authority in Jerusalem at this time, the occupying force, and uh, they wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so they decided they're going to have a hearing. Well, the hearing is the next day. And these, the next day to this, these verses we just read, these men are now coming to the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and said, we're going to kill Paul tomorrow at this hearing. And we want you to help us do this. So that's what's going on. And the disciples of Christ, which all believers are to be, we we are to hate evil and to love good, not hate people, even if they are evil. Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Amos 5, 15, hate evil, love good. And of course, it's throughout Scripture, these teachings uh, are there for us to avail ourselves to become those disciples of Christ we want to be. But love and hate both have a very long range. And I think it's helpful to be mindful of this, conscious of this more often. The father of the prodigal son, he had a long-range love. And the Bible puts that out there for us to ponder, to meditate on, uh, and to consider for our own development in Christ. Luke chapter 15, verse 20 If you don't know about the prodigal son, he was the son that 
wanted his inheritance, left home with the inheritance, wasted it on sinful living, and then when he was at the end of himself, he said, uh, you know, I was better off at home than I am in the world. Uh, a servant in my father's house is, is doing better than what I'm doing. Maybe he'll take me back. And he heads home, and his father sees him from a distance. And we pick it up, Luke 15, 20. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And that's that long-range love. He sees him. He knows his boy. He can just tell by the silhouette. And uh, you can imagine what was going through the heart of the father at that that time. And so we want to learn from these kinds of lessons. These little snapshots are, are big points often in Scripture, and, and that's one of them. May we learn to have a, a long-range, long-lasting love, one that does not uh, pitter out, that does not just run out of gas. Agape love does not do that. Agape love comes from the touch of Christ. And then on the other side of this, hatred also has long range. Hatred has uh, a, a long view also. And we are taught this in the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph's brothers, they hated him from a distance. They hated him up close. Genesis 37.4, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Genesis 37.8, so they hated him even more. Genesis 37, 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. We're talking about facing hatred because this is what we're given in the scripture as we move verse by verse and chapter by chapter. This man, Paul, he's hated for loving Gentiles in Christ. And they're going to kill him for it if they can. And this hatred for Paul was more intense than the hatred that Joseph's brothers had for him. These, these men were taking a vow. They called a curse upon themselves. They didn't mean it. We'll come back to that. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We get that out of the Gospels. When someone comes to Christ, we advise them, go to the Gospels, meet Christ from the Scriptures. And then the Holy Spirit will fill in so many uh, gaps, so many voids, and, and, and then the, the discipleship is on. And many have lived who hate Jesus without a cause. They don't know why they hate him. Uh, and hopefully we'll have a chance to explain it to him in this life. But the cause of hatred for Christ is in them, not in Christ. Christ, of course, loves the sinner. I hope we don't hear that so often that it loses its punch. Because I want Christ to love me. And I am imperfect. I know you're surprised by that. <laughs> but I want him to love me. And I want to remember that he loves others that bother me too. Uh, you know, there are people that will bother you in life. And you just, you know, Christ loves them. And you watch your step. And that's the way it's supposed to be. John, in his first letter, writes, Don't be amazed, my brethren, if the world hates you. Not all of us get to be hated like Paul. We may have our enemies. And some of us do have people that hate us. And it's opportunity in all of it, on some level. Maybe not an opportunity. I mean, Paul had no opportunity to witness to these men. 
That's not what he did with his opportunity, and that's what we want to talk about. Well, what did he do with this? How did he face the hatred? John's Gospel 3, verse 20, For everyone practicing evil, which we are to abhor, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Yes, so it's one thing to see the evil in others. What about the carnality in ourselves? What about that part of us that just can't get interested in Christ? What about that part of us that just, you know, uh, wants to call attention to me? First, and not Christ, that shallowness. Well, we all have something, and we all have to learn how to deal with it if we're going to be these disciples of Christ. And while Paul was hated by fanatics, he was also greatly loved by Jesus' lovers. And this comes out so clear when we get to his entrance, uh, when he comes to Rome, when he's on his way to Rome, 40 miles out, and he just pour this love out on this man. And so uh, this, is, this contributed. It's helpful to know if you have someone that hates you, yeah, well, I've got others that love me too. If you just have those that hate you, you'd you be in a bad spot. Verse 12, we begin now with that introduction. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They knew Rome was not going to rule on their side. They wanted Rome to say, he's guilty of insurrection and we're going to kill him. But they knew Rome wasn't going to do that. So they were these vigilantes, religious vigilantes. They were going to do it. To be a religious vigilante, you've got to be pretty self-righteous, pretty impressed with yourself and underwhelmed with everybody else. And if the prophet Elijah can be susceptible to that, so can we. The prophet Elijah said, I'm the only one left. Of course, God responded to that with a, no, you're not, uh, to make it long story short. It is, I think, important to know that the word here in the New King James and some of the other translations, that they put themselves under an oath. Some translations use the word curse. Well, the, the, he, the, the Greek word is anathematized. They essentially said, may we go to hell if we don't kill this man. May God send us to hell. It was rhetoric, fanatical rhetoric. They said, we're not going to eat until we kill them. Well, they never got to kill them. Did they starve to death? Did they die of thirst? Of course not. The rabbis had a way out for all this stuff. It is, it's in their writings on how to get out of things. This is all just a pretense. This is corrupted zeal. And it, is, uh, it has been around since Cain and Abel. There's nothing new about this. It was a deadly rhetoric of zealots that Paul was facing, because had they got the chance, he would have been killed. And there's other lessons in this. And so uh, these religious vigilantes also had no right to kill him according to their scripture, which they overruled with their traditions and other good ideas that they had come up with. That's why Jesus said, these people draw near me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And throw, you know, just tossing God's word out. Uh, you want a man to step into the pulpit who uses the Bible. Who quotes scripture in context. Who gives you context. And that you can bring your Bibles and you can check it yourselves. 
rather than just standing up here giving you good opinions that, that he is impressed by. Uh, yeah, there are insights that pastors get that, they are, that are impressive, and the Holy Spirit gives, them, gives those to them, but insights to the Word of God. And these insights do not corrupt or alter the Word of God. They may just give it a little bit more focus from time to time for those of us who need it. <clears throat> and so, verse 13, we read, Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Verse 14, uh, Acts chapter 23. They came to the chief priest and elders and said, We have found ourselves uh, bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So you, you, this morning, how many times have you heard, kill Paul? Kill Paul. That's the hatred. Satan is behind all of this, but he doesn't act alone. He needs a fallen nature to pull it off. And there's never been a shortage of fallen natures uh, after Adam and Eve had committed the first act of sin. A lot of energy was put into this, this loathing of a man. That's what hate does. Hate puts a lot of energy into what it is trying to do. They despised the man. They didn't know this, but they despised the man who we know wrote 1 Corinthians 13. This is a man that wrote about love and was pulling it off as best as people can. Hebrews 13 writes uh, just a short commentary on this kind of stuff that we're faced with to this day of whom the world was not worthy. The world is not worthy, uh, and yet we are to reach them with the one who is, and that is the Christ. And this is, this is how Paul's going to face it all. To get to the end of the story, in the middle or in the beginning here, Paul's response is going to be, I'm going to preach hell out of business to whoever I can. And everybody that came to Christ because of him, let's just say Onesimus, the runaway slave, for example, he was preached out of hell. Because this man, this man knew how to face hatred. Uh, you, you know, I don't think you get good at facing hatred, speaking for myself, or, or people not liking you or criticizing you. You may not get good at dealing with that part of it, but what you can do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, you press forward towards the mark, the prize, the high calling in Christ Jesus. You sort of sidestep that. You take the pain, but you keep moving forward. And... Uh, uh, that success in the gospel is revenge enough against the evil that we face. <clears throat> so you could say in that indirect way, when God says vengeance is mine, he can execute some of that vengeance by having Christians who major in the majors and not major in the minors. That he has Christians who stay focused on the objective because the objective is perfect. There's none better. And that objective is to glorify Christ. And we glorify him in a multitude of ways. Just uh, preaching Christ, it's not enough, but it is critical. It has to be there. But there are other things too. Forgiving somebody, helping somebody. I mean, there's just a lot of ways to demonstrate that uh, uh, Christ 
is very active wherever you are. Uh, in spite of yourself, don't fall for the devil's lie when you stumble. You, he'll tell you how unworthy you are, how despicable you are, how pitiful you are. And the response to that, yeah, but Christ loved me enough to die for me still. And then you can add, no, okay. So, because it's such, a, it's such a profound truth. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. And if you don't learn to fire that back at the devil, he'll push you out of line. You won't serve. Uh, anyway, they failed to kill Paul. And uh, <clears throat> Satan, of course, uses blind religion <clears throat> to make fools and hypocrites of people. There's a lot of religion in this world, and the majority of it is blind. The majority of it makes hypocrites out of the people who are often fanatical about it. And, uh, the, you know, they have tricks to their way of doing things. The, for me, the only truth that answers creation and humanity and the curse is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They all fail. They never deal with the sin. They never deal with the problem. They never give good answers. They do not match science. Science matches the word, not the other way around. Because the word of God is around long before men began studying the creation of God, which is what science is supposed to be. A study of creation, which is often corrupted. Verse 15. Here they are still speaking now to the Religious leaders, now you therefore together with the council suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make fuller inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. This is, um, again, over 40 men. So you have a couple of rifle platoons. I mean, that's, it's, it's a good amount. Rome could take care of these guys real quick. Uh, we'll we'll come, come to that. Uh, but they don't want that. They don't want this confrontation on, that may develop into an uprising. But this 15th verse, it reveals the corruption of the religious leaders and the ignorance of fanaticism in the zealots. You have a corrupt leadership and you have uh, uh, an out-of-control band of zealots uh, who are just unmindful of what the God that they think they're being zealous for says about this kind of stuff. Paul was entitled to a fair trial, not to be assassinated. It didn't matter to them. Because with, with the world, with Satan, the end justifies the means. False believers have no problem hiding nefarious intentions as they do in the name of their religion. Is it okay to be deceitful in the name of Christ? Never. It, it just never is. Thou shalt not have bear false witness. You're not, we're not supposed to lie to further the truth. That's a breakdown of integrity. And that gives Satan the ammunition that he cherishes. Violence and deceitfulness in the name of religion has been widespread. Again, since Cain slew Abel after church. That's how it's presented to us. These, these men were numb to righteousness... And they slithered forward nonetheless. Again, the end justifies the means in a worldly uh, uh, and, and ungodly way. But uh, unless the means are righteous, it doesn't belong to Christ. You can't lie to somebody to win their soul. I mean, you can do it. But it's corruption. 
Job said it this way, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Job 14.4. The no one is Job's words. He's making a statement. He's not, it's a rhetorical. He's not asking them to answer it. He's just emphasizing. His audience would have known this. But when he says no one, it's, it's, it's emphatic. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now here, the nephew hears of the conspiracy. He's probably a teenager, as the story goes, somewhere in his teens. Because at one point, he actually gives a little advice to the Roman uh, commander. And so he's probably not that small, and yet he's not that big, because the Roman commander is going to take him by the hand and, and pull him over to the side to, to talk to him. He speaks up. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. That's interesting. Some of the commentators are so shocked. They think Paul was anathema to all of his family. From well, that's not. They have no evidence of that. Evidently, that's not the case. He is. It, what comes out of this is now you're messing with my uncle, and uh, he's going to do something about it. And he does. He tells Paul. And if Paul was a curse to him, he would not have said anything. Verse seventeen. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him, and said, "Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him." Well, there's a little idea about how many troops were in Jerusalem alone, not Israel. Israel had, there were other legions within uh, Israel. But just in Jerusalem, here's a, one of the commanders of a hundred men. The uh, commander here in verse 17, you have the centurion and you have the commander. The commander, Achilliarch in the Greek, means a, a commander over a thousand men. So he has at least ten centurions under him. And that's just counting the infantry. So this is a large occupation force that is in Jerusalem. And I point that out because they're not worried about taking out the 40 assassins. They just don't want the, the headache of the uprising and what they could lead to. So it's pretty wise how the camp, this commander is going to deal with it. Paul, um, he does not say, when his nephew says, Uncle Paul... They're going to kill you. Paul does not say, well, I had a, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I'm going to be before Caesar. I don't have to worry about this stuff. That would have been foolish faith, and it is widely practiced. That is, I'm going to trust God even though God is doing something opposite of what I'm trusting. What God is doing here is showing him he's in jeopardy. That's the Lord. And it would have been foolish to just lay back in his cot and said, let him come and try presumptuous faith. So God, he uh, exposes the plot so that action could be taken. And all along, all along this path, Christianity is working. Christianity is an action because just consider this. At one point, Luke gets hold of the letter, this government document sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea. How did he get that? He must have had allies. There must have been Christians, people getting saved uh, throughout the empire, wherever these men went. Or else who would say, yeah, here's a copy of what Lysias sent up to, to Felix. So it is, uh, you know, the, facing the hatred is not, not accommodating the hatred. And so, ooh, you know, we're hated. I better stop preaching Christ. But at the same time, he does not say, well, I'm going to jam it down people's throats anyway. He doesn't do that either. He finds that balance, that grace. 
Faith does not violate reason. It improves it every time. It is the wisdom that comes from God. Warning every man. Teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Paul will quote, or he will write to the church at Colossae, and I'll close the message with that verse. Not yet, but I'll repeat it. Verse 18 now. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Now, it's interesting. This is a centurion, and there are always noble men in the Scripture. Every time they show up, they're admirable men. They're men of action. And the centurion doesn't say to the lad, well, you tell me first. His orders were to go to the commander, and that's what he's going to do. And that alone is, is admirable. In verse 19, then the commander took him by the hand, that's the Kiliarch, the one over the thousand men. He, so he takes the lad by the hand and went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? He doesn't even let his, his company commander know what's going on. This is very private. And uh, uh, it's a noble and sensitive gesture. He knows the, the young man is intimidated by all this authority. There's the Romans in their garb. I mean, you need to look at a drawing of the Roman soldiers and they look intimidating. Uh, they knew how to shed blood. Uh, Jesus talks about that in, in, in Luke chapter 13. You know, they, they, they knew how to kill. Anyway, knowing the lab was intimidated by the authority, he helps to assure him that he's amongst allies. <clears throat> it's kind of a very human and touching moment here uh, that, that worked. And it, it, it gets a little bit even more um, interesting. Verse 20, and he said, the, now the nephew is speaking to the commander, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. Verse 21, but do not yield to them. Pause there. See, that's why I think he's a little older than just, you know, he's not 10 years old or something because that'd be a unique 10-year-old to tell the command, let me tell you what you need to do. Uh, and, and he's not saying it that way, but he is saying, don't listen to them. He's, he's you know, sharp enough to be able to, to uh, add that. Anyway, continues in verse 21 of Acts 23. For more than 40 men lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. He puts it right on him, does he not? <clears throat> in verse 22. I don't think it's intentional, it's just the way it is. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him to tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. I got to love that. The commander knows what to do. He says, I, I, I'm not telling anybody. I don't want you to tell anybody. I'm going to trust that you're not going to tell anybody. So there had to be enough of that. That you, you know, Sometimes you meet people, you just trust them. Cause you, and, and you're right. You know, they're, they're good people. You just can figure it out. That seems to be the case here. But uh, there, there's, there's more to this story. Uh, he's comfortable enough to trust him, to keep the secret. He could have arrested him, uh, you know, in, in protective custody until this matter was done. But he doesn't do that. Uh, verse 23, it continues. Um, well, let me just read up at verse 22 again to command. All right. So, to, verse 23 is he sent to Felix, where he sent to Felix, and he called for two centurions saying, Prepare 200 soldiers 
70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. See, men of action. And no hesitation. He knows what to do. He puts together 470 men to, to move Paul out of Jerusalem, and he's going to do it under the cover of darkness. He's got cavalry, spearmen, and, and infantrymen. Uh, you just admire this. It was not like, oh, I don't know what to do. Maybe we'll wait till tomorrow. Right into action. Now, here we have, uh, he's, he's going to take him to the governor in Caesarea, who's a larger governor of the region. Syria, uh, Cilicia, Syria is even bigger, but that comes later. Sorry for even bringing it up. Marcus Antonius Felix, that cat was unscrupulous. For those of you who remember Felix the cat, I never liked him. He did, his voice was just, anyway. Uh, Felix came after Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the, 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 the commander of, there from Caesarea over, Jeru- over that region. Well, Pilate's gone, and uh, Felix is in his place. Felix will last a couple of years, and Rome will get rid of him because he he's such an unscrupulous man that uh, Festus will then... Uh, he, and I'm sure Festus was someone's uncle, but um, he'll, he'll take his place. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, this commander knows these fanatics would act without hesitation. He, he knows who these guys are. And uh, the third hour was when they're departing Jerusalem, 9, 9 p.m., that's under darkness. It's just so perfect. You know, he doesn't say 8.30 when the sun is, you know, he wants darkness. Um, uh, that allows them, again, to go into the cover of darkness. Verse 24, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So Paul... He's going to go and preach to Caesar himself, Nero Caesar, because God promised him that. And he's going at the expense of Rome. Rome's going to pay for the trip, the meals, and everything that is needed. Uh, yeah, there'll be a shipwreck and a snake bite or so, but uh, he'll, he'll, he'll prevail. But here he gets to ride. Uh, not likely that Paul had a horse when he goes from city to city. You know, the expenses to care for the horse, they, they walked. But here, Rome is giving him, you know, he's traveling first class. You, you know, you go get a flight, you have first class, you have low class. <laughs> so, they give it other names. It's coach. Um, all right, maybe you don't fly anywhere. Maybe they're insulted by that. I don't know. Anyway, he's traveling in style. This is the third time that we know of this man being chased out of a city at night, he was chased out of Damascus where they let him down in a basket. Get in the hamper, Paul. We'll lower you to the ground. And then he's chased out of Thessalonica. Well, he was chased to Thessalonica. I, I, I say it all the time. You know, he shows up at Thessalonica. He's still, he and Silas, they still uh, have the, the wounds on their back from the canings they received. And uh, they show up preaching the gospel. You couldn't stop these guys. And, and now Jerusalem. And it's about 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima, which is Caesarea by the sea, because it was a Caesarea Philippi, which is inland. So this is going to be a, a trek. I don't think Paul is nervous at all, not only because of the promise of the Lord, but he sees these troops around him. He knows nobody's going to mess with them. Uh, anyway, I would point out one other thing. 
there had to have been a, a very big force occupying Jerusalem. Because if there were only a thousand men, he's not going to send half his army out of town. Especially when he, there's this threat of fanaticism. So the, the, he's just a commander of a thousand. There could have been a, another two or three commanders of other thousands. And that had to have been a very large uh, force there. Well, verse 26, well, verse 25, he wrote a letter in the following manner. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Luke the physician got his hands on a copy of this letter. Uh, maybe Theophilus, who he writes, had connections. We're not told. But what we do know is that Christianity had friends in high places in, in time. In fact, uh, you know, there are those that were in Herod's court that were grew up with Herod that had become Christians. Don't underestimate the power of sharing Christ when the Lord opens the door. Underestimate it when you, when you open the door. Then you're going to have problems. But, uh, you know, to learn to be led... We, we say, you know, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge the Lord. All right, do that when it comes to witnessing. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Okay, be led by the Spirit of God when it comes to witnessing. Don't think just somehow blurting it out is, is, is serving Christ. What you're doing is trying to tell yourself, see, I'm not afraid. That's not the objective. The objective is not to make you feel comfortable in what you're doing, though we can. The objective is to be led by the Spirit because that's where the power is. And uh, that is the whole, one of the first lessons from Pentecost. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you shall be my witnesses. And you will begin in the city that killed me, Jerusalem. And then Samaria, the city where, you know, you've got some racial issues. And then to all Judea, your beloved land, and to the outermost parts of the world where those Gentiles are. I think that covers about everything. That's the gospel that we belong to. Nothing has diminished that in 2,000 years. Well, now verse 26, Claudius, Lysias, he says, he's writing the letter in the following manner. Claudius, Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. Verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. Yeah, but you left out the part where you were going to beat him. <laughs> so Lysias says, I'm not stupid. Of course I'm not going to put that in there. Verse 28, and I, will, and I wanted to know the reason they accused him. I brought him before their council, and I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Pause there. Not all unbelievers are interested in your faith. Claudius really is not interested in his faith. I mean, he's doing the right thing, but he's not. Hey, tell me about the gospel. I mean, others will, but that's not the case here. And I think that's, a, you know, we need to understand. Paul did not try to jam the gospel down the, the, the throat of this commander. He continues in verse 20. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, that they lie in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers, accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So that's his formal uh, introduction to the governor of, uh, of Judea, the Roman 
governor. Verse 31, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now, Antipatris is about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. There was a significant outpost. It was a significant outpost there. Rome had a lot of troops there. And uh, it was uh, a known rest stop for even all travelers from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Uh, so, actually, the, the force with Paul is even stronger now once they arrive. Uh, verse, 20, verse 32, The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. Uh, so, um, the, the force is diminished now because they're, they're far enough away. And so, um, uh, verse uh, 33, When they came to Caesarea... And had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Verse 34, and when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, verse 35 now, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Well, when he asked him, well, where are you from? That gave Felix a chance to opt out of judging the case. He said, ah, oh, this is a higher court. But he doesn't. He keeps it. Not to say that's a crime or anything. But we do know he, he's a rat fink kind of guy. He, he's going to want money from Paul. He doesn't get it. And so he, he's going to keep Paul in prison because he thinks Paul can bribe his way out. Give you a little idea of, uh, you know, the politicians today are so much better. They, yeah, they don't have lobbyists. Uh, anyway, um, earlier, when faced with hostile Gentiles in Corinth, when Paul goes to Corinth, he was terrified. He, he, he realized this is a bad city. He probably entered the wrong part of town because, you know, all towns have got a good neighborhood and very bad neighborhoods. And he probably entered the wrong one. And, anyway, God gave him a vision. To inspire him, and you, when the when you are encouraged in the faith, uh, that is it is inspiring when God gives you a nudge. Maybe it's a person that gives you a word in season. You know, they just say something to you, and oftentimes they don't even know they're encouraging you. They just it just comes out, and you recognize it's the Lord, and you take strength. Um, uh, Peter, when he and John were on the boat, and the other disciples, and they saw the Lord on the land after the resurrection, when John recognized it was the Lord who asked, did you catch anything? Uh, how inspiring, because the, the next thing John heard was Peter splashing into the water, swimming toward the Lord. He's so inspired by that moment. So yeah, Paul is, um, he goes to Corinth and the Lord inspires him. And what comes out of that is this large Christian church, albeit loaded with problems, it was also loaded with good. The Corinthian letters are letters that we have today that are largely ignored uh, in their teachings uh, in many Christian circles. Uh, just on the morale, the morals, you know, where, where, where Paul says, you know, you got a guy there that is, has his father's wife and you think you're being gracious with this kind of stuff. And Paul slams the door on that. 
Well, today you come across Christians living in sin, and you say, hey, look, we have to disfellowship. We want to work with you, try, but you, you can't. We're trying to do our best to uphold the Lord's word, too. You should be helping us. And then sometimes they get pretty nasty with us. So um, anyway, well, we, we, how do we face that nastiness? Well, we continue doing what we're doing. But uh, the, these documents have been preserved by the blood of the saints. They are worth trying to obey. We're not saying we're perfect, we're better than you. But there are certain sins that are blatant, and once they come out, they have to be dealt with. Um, we don't have the right, no one does, I think, go around looking for for weakness in other lives of other people. That's not what we're talking about. But when it comes out at us, what are you going to do? If you don't do something, then you've got another group that's going to say, you know, you should have done something, and they'd be right. Well, anyway... Um, here again, uh, as he's now facing these assassins, the Lord has, has encouraged him before he got wind of their uh, determination to kill him. And Acts 23, which we're in, in verse 11, Paul is, as we covered last week, he's, he's pretty down in the dumps. The Jerusalem trip has been a disaster. He's probably saying, I thought I was led by the Spirit, and all I got is woe, and, and it's just not working out. And we know that because he would not have been encouraged by the Lord had he been, you know, cheery about the whole thing. And so in verse 11 it says, if you have your Bibles open, Acts 23, uh, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So he knew he was going to get to Rome to preach to others, and he embraced that. He didn't just know it. That stoked him. It inspired him. So as he's being uh, taken to Caesarea, he is totally where he needs to be in his head. And this is going to stay with him until his feet touch, touch Italy, uh, he, and, and he's going to stay with him for the rest of his life, but he doesn't lose it. When the snake bites him and he shakes it off, he, he still understands that God, he's God's man. So in, while he's in this <clears throat> protective custody, because he's really not arrested, though he is jailed. <laughs> protective custody, a fancy word for it. Um, here's one of the, from the Colossian letter, which he's going to write not long after these events here. He says to the church in Colossae, Continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Something that we, we, we tend to forget because we think thanksgiving requires a gift. Before we say thank you, you have to give us something. But our thanksgiving is based on the worthiness of the Lord to be our Lord and all that he has done. We don't have to have him give us a present every day to thank him. Anyway, Paul continues, he says, meanwhile, he says, continue earnestly in, in prayer, be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Here's this man that has done so much for the church already. How many churches have we listed? You know, he started already. Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth. I mean, he's just, he just dynamo. And yet he's not arrogant. He says, I'm, I pray, to, pray for me that I can speak the gospel as I'm supposed to speak it. You see, that's, his, that's how he faced hatred. They were hating him. 
He's preaching the gospel to other people. If they won't hear it, others will. He's not deterred. Again, he writes another letter from this jailing, the Ephesian letter. And he says, uh, and pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, maybe you say, I don't have the opportunities to speak like Paul. You have opportunities to serve. And I've seen Christians uh, over the decades who have been uh, you know, hated and despised by somebody. Uh, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a co-worker or something. And still they're serving in the church. That's their response. I'm going to still serve. And uh, this is what we're seeing Paul do. So if you find yourself hated, what is one of the antidotes or reactions? Serve the Lord. Serve the gospel. Paul's haters were fanatics, but Paul was devout. He was not a fanatic. He did not lose his reasoning. He defeated the hatred of some by sharing the love of Christ with others. As Jesus said, if they don't receive it, knock the dust off your feet and move on. What he left out of that is there would be people who didn't receive the gospel by, through hatred. Maybe it's your own flesh. Maybe no one hates you, but you're, you're, you're spiritually lazy. You're not moved by the scriptures. That merits a, a conversation, a dialogue with God. He's waiting for you. And if you say, well, I already talked to him about it. Well, keep on. What is this? What is this? We get one shot? Um... If he's not answering you right away, it's because there are other things inside of you he wants to extract. And that extraction comes from articulation, from speaking to him and putting your thoughts into words. Uh, anyway, uh, he, he did I'll close with this verse in under 47 minutes. Colossians 1, I quoted it already. It's such a beautiful verse. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, Christ Jesus. You catch that warning every man, teaching every man that we may present every man. He's talking about every man who will hear him speak, not every single person on earth. That would just be ridiculous. Uh, this is the response. This is facing hatred. And may we take to heart whatever lessons the Holy Spirit points out for us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, your word so thorough covers everything. Uh, maybe maybe um, someone has come to church and looking to hear for something else from you, but this is what they got. And maybe they don't need it right now, but maybe they'll need it later. Or maybe they'll come across someone else who could benefit from the lessons that are here, and they could share it. Either way, your word does not return void because there's nothing void about you. And we, our love for you, Lord, is not um, without reason. There's a reason we love you and adore you and look so forward to being with you. But for now, uh, there's work to be done. And we have to face all the meanness of this life, and may we face it in Christ. May we not forget the objective. May we not major in the minors. 
And may, may, Lord, we do all these things in the strength of your spirit. If you've been listening and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you're one of those people who Paul wanted to reach, and you certainly are one that Christ is reaching out to, to come to him, to say goodbye to life under your authority, your own authority, and to receive it under his authority. You've got to serve somebody, and it is going to be Satan or the true Lord God in Christ Jesus. You have a say-so. You have no say-so about being born into this world, but you have every bit of a say-so about being born again while in this world. If you make this prayer, Christ will receive you. It's how he set it up. He set it up to be, a, to be used, that, that sinners would avail themselves of grace. That, that is undeserved kindness from God. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments, the commandments of God. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you for forgiveness because there's nobody else to go to. No one else is as true as you. No one else died for me and rose again to demonstrate the power, the authority that you have over sin, over creation. I ask you to forgive me. And from this day forward, be not only the one who saves my soul, but the one who lords over my life. And now, Father, if anybody has made this prayer, may they be quick to, <clears throat> to say it. And may they be filled with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.